If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you this morning to turn with me uh, to the book of John once again. The book of John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If uh, you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin or grab a Bible off of the back cart. This morning we turn to an account that is as important as it is unbelievable. Those of you who have been here know that we have been studying the book of John, or at least these latter chapters of John. We've been looking at the farewell discourse as Jesus looks to the cross and looks to His work in giving of Himself. And as we jump back into that timeline, though we've moved on from the farewell discourse, as we jump back into that timeline, the suffering of Jesus is over. It is finished, has been declared. Atonement for sins has been made. The great Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has given of Himself. Obedience to the point of death has occurred The work of Christ is done, and He sits, or He lies, dead in a tomb. And yet, Sunday's coming, and now here we are. Sunday is here. The vindication of God remains, and it's a vindication of God that our very faith depends upon as we've confessed, as we've meditated on already. And so this morning, though we're not going to look at the entirety of these verses, we're not going to pick apart everything that we could study, uh, but I wanted to hear, I wanted us to hear indeed the whole account. And so John chapter 20, if you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 31. Listen as I read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, 
but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, this morning as we come to what I suspect is for many of us, most of us, all of us, a familiar passage, I'd like us to meditate upon two truths this Resurrection Sunday. Two truths that our hearts need every day, and the first one is this, the resurrection is real news, real good news. The resurrection is real news, real good news. There are a lot of debates these days about the news that we are hearing, particularly as Americans, although you could go to other places in the world and find the same type debate. We hear phrases like fake news. We hear phrases like the spin factor. And it makes us ask questions like, what 
are we exactly to believe? Who is telling the truth? Indeed, what is the truth? So we come to this account this morning from John chapter 20. These are questions that we ask. Is this true? Could this be true? It's not lost on me this morning that Resurrection Sunday, that Easter morning, coincides with a silly little cultural thing that we do in our modern day called April Fool's Day. And maybe you've thought about that. Are we sitting here this morning as those being fooled by some elaborate hoax that happened 2,000 years ago while the sane world around us does better things with their time this morning. I mean, we know that scientifically what we just read is impossible. People can be revived People can be resuscitated. Modern medicine is indeed a marvel, but organs do not just spontaneously start up again. Hearts do not just begin to beat. And yet that's the report, that's the news that the Apostle John shares. And indeed, that's the claim as we know, many of us, all of us, that's the claim of the entire New Testament, of the entire Bible, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from a little literal grave of death, and that in doing that, he has proved that all that he said was true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living bread by which no man can live without. He is the only one to the Father He is the vine that we must be connected to for our life, both here and in eternity. The resurrection is real news. And this from a Jewish man who not only walked with Jesus, but proclaimed this very story to his final breath. And what did he gain in doing that? What did John gain in proclaiming this to his death? Not prosperity, not earthly comfort, but ultimately death. And now here this morning, he speaks beyond the grave through this historical book preserved for thousands of years with news not just for the church, but news for the world, real news, good news. And he tells us in verse 31 that he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. He wants to help us have eyes to see. So this morning for the next few minutes, I want us to walk through just for a moment what he reports To think again on what God has revealed to us through His Word, whether you've heard it before or not, that those who do not have eyes to see would indeed see this morning, and that those of you who have seen for years and years would be marveled and encouraged once 
again that this is real. We've looked at Mark's account of these things, but John's different. John comes from an entirely different angle. It's the first day of the week. We're at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Right out of the gate, John grounds what he's about to say in time and in space. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us who sit here today, but it means everything to those to whom John interacted with, to whom John first wrote, everyone who had much to gain by disproving this account, by saying that this was fake news. John says, no, this is when it happened. This is where it happened. John, in this selective history, names Mary alone, but we know from the other gospel writers, from the other historical accounts that have been preserved for us in the Scripture, that several women were with her, and she says as much in this account that John gives us. She says that, that she uses the word we when she talks to Peter. Matthew records Mary, the mother of James, being there. Mark adds Salome, and Luke speaks of Joanna and others being present. And so all these women are there, and these women matter at the tomb as the first witnesses because they're not the standard, reliable, ancient world first witnesses. And so, John, if you're fabricating an account, do not make these women the first one to find an empty tomb. And yet that's what he does. Well, Mary goes and she speaks to the men and the men come and there's this really curious detail about these men racing, about Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple being the one who is writing the account, John. And I find it almost comical that John is speaking of this race to the tomb, and John says not just once, but he says twice, oh yeah, I beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> right? I got there first, then Peter, he lagged along, panting the whole way. Seems to be an unnecessary detail, but this was, this was John's life. This was John's experience. He had witnessed these things. We don't know the mind of, of Peter and John as they ran to the tomb that early, dark morning, but we know that Mary assumes the body's been stolen. A common thing in the ancient world. She just assumes someone has taken it. And you know what? That's exactly what the chief priests and scribes wanted to say happened. They had everything to gain by saying, yes, Jesus' body was, was stolen, and here it is. We found it. They could have stopped this nonsense in, it, in its tracks, but John doubles down and says, the body wasn't stolen. The grave clothes are still there. What grave robber is going to unwrap a dead body? Not only that, but someone... Someone has folded a face cloth and left it there for all to see. You see, at this point in the story, at this point in John's reporting of the news, in this account, no one understands what's happening. 
No one has put together all the things that Jesus has said, all the times that he has hinted that this is the way it must be. They weren't expecting this. There's lots of uncertainty and, and lots of, of doubt in Peter, or excuse me, in John's recording of these events. Again, John, if, if you're going to make something up, don't put so much uncertainty. Well, there was one. There was one who put it all together. It was the fast one, the one who got to the tomb first. Verse 8, John tells us that he saw, he understood, and indeed he concludes that Jesus is alive. It would take an angel and an appearance by Jesus himself to convince the others that this was indeed true, that the unbelievable had become a reality. But what about us? Can we bring our minds to really embrace this reality? This is the crux of it all as we have sung, as we have confessed, if this is true, if Jesus is no longer dead, then everything changes. Nothing will be the same. Our past, our present, and our future. It's April Fool's Day. And friends, we gather this morning and we are fools. We are fools. 1 Corinthians 1 18, Paul says to the church, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, to the world, we are fools to believe in such news, news that's too good to be true. But if we don't believe, we're fools as well. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. This account and the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that this is what everyone in the world must deal with. The claims, the news accounts, the historical records of a, res of a resurrected Jesus. If he is dead, there is no point. If he is risen, you must bow. Folks, this is a truth not just for resurrection morning. We are people of the risen King every moment of, of every day. Charles Colson is a man that some of you may have heard that name, once known as President Nick Nixon's hatchet man. That was his nickname. He was part of the Watergate 7 that was convicted of obstruction of justice and was sentenced and then served several years in federal penitentiary. But before Charles Colson went to prison, he became a Christian. And the resurrection in his life was no small matter in that conversion. He wrote this, I know that the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he says. And indeed, it's true. So let your minds be comforted once again. Let your hearts be stirred and encouraged. The resurrection is real news, real good news, worthy of our very lives. But maybe you're here this morning and there is there's still a struggle, there's still a tension to, to see it all clearly. It's, it's, it's so distant, it's so much on a page. Is there any more news that John speaks to us here this morning? Well, there is. John unequivocally wants you to have eyes to see what he speaks of as true, but he also wants you to hear this. Jesus can handle your doubts. Jesus can handle your doubts. Another way we might say that is the resurrection can survive your scrutiny. And if not your scrutiny this morning, the scrutiny of your neighbor, the scrutiny of your boss, the scrutiny of your coworker, the scrutiny of that family member. The resurrection is the crux of it all. It must be dealt with, and it can handle the doubts. There's a thing in our modern world called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. And it's a term that has been used and created to describe this modern social media phenomenon that we have. I doubt Thomas had a fear of missing out, but one thing is clear from this passage, he did miss out. He missed out. Following the empty tomb and the appearance of the angel and then Jesus to Mary, there's this, this buzz, this confusion, this buzz around the leadership of the ones who follow Jesus for the last years. I'm not sure we'd call it belief. In fact, I don't think we would call it belief. But we call it a buzz mixed with a whole lot of fear, a whole lot of uncertainty. The doors are locked after all. These are the leaders of a movement whose leader has just been executed publicly. And so they're holed up with the doors locked. And yet it's here at the end of chapter 20 where Jesus, or near the end of chapter 20, where Jesus turns their faith to sight. And as a result, the lives of these 10 men will never, ever be the same. And I say 10 because, one, Judas has taken the money and he has run. And the other, Thomas, is for some reason missing. He's gone. Maybe he's taking a walk. Maybe he's too discouraged. We don't know where Thomas is. We just know he's absent. And so when Jesus appears to his disciples, to these 10 men holed up in this room, fearful for their lives, confused and yet hopeful, he brings certainty to them. He speaks his peace over them. 
He commissions them to tell others of what they have seen, of what they know now, to be absolutely certain and absolutely be true, and he gives them a taste, a foretaste of what is coming in the Holy Spirit. All of these things, Thomas missed them. Thomas, what do, you, what do you think of when you think of that name Thomas? Thomas forever is linked with the word doubt. Doubting Thomas. Such an unfortunate label for Thomas to bear for all of human history, but I suppose it could have been worse. Thomas missing out on the appearance of the risen Jesus and yet still trying to process the events of the past weekend. And for that matter, the last years that he spent with Jesus, what have I been doing with my life if my Jesus is now dead? See, Thomas doesn't just doubt. I don't know that we should call him doubting Thomas. Thomas just doesn't believe. And he won't believe. He declares that, I will not believe until I have the proof. But were the disciples any different? Were the disciples any different? No, the, di- the only difference is the disciples had seen proof. We have seen the Lord, the disciples exclaim. And that is what did it for them. They were confused, they were scared, and then the Lord appeared and they were certain. And now they proclaim that to Thomas as he returns to them and who knows what Thomas was thinking that they were saying. Did he think they were lying? Did they think they, they were joking? Did he think that they were delusional and in denial in this stage of grief? We don't know. In fact, we don't know all that much about Thomas. Thomas is only mentioned by name in this gospel account and only in two references prior to when he appears here in John chapter 20. Some have called him the ultimate realist. The ultimate realist. In John chapter 11, verse 16, we first hear his name, and Jesus has told his disciples that Lazarus has died, and he must go wake him up. And that's confusing, but what that entails, that it entails going back to a region that is dangerous for Jesus, that's dangerous for his followers. And so Thomas replies to Jesus' declaration that he's going to go wake Lazarus up with this statement. Well, let's go also that we may die with him. It's kind of just a, a real, grim, honest statement. All right, if it's come to this, let's do this. And then we don't hear from Thomas again until chapter 14, when he's the one who expresses confusion about where Jesus is going when he says that he's going to prepare a place for them. Maybe, maybe Thomas is the ultimate realist, and that maybe has something to do with the fact that he goes through what he goes through. Thomas is in a position that none of the other disciples are in. And the story of how Jesus meets him is, I think, beautiful. And it displays for us once again this this gracious condescension of the Lord. 
Jesus doesn't ignore him in his unbelief, in his skepticism, in his doubts. But Jesus does make him wait. Do you notice that? For eight days, eight days, Thomas has to wrestle with his unbelief. But when the time was right and when Thomas was ripe, Jesus meets him in his unbelief and he graciously offers everything that Thomas said he needed. You needed to see? Here they are. Here are my hands. You need to touch? Here is my side. Now, the, the, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that Thomas actually took him up and actually did what he said he needed to do. Seen was enough. My Lord and my God. That one statement was Thomas's repentance. You see, Thomas, Thomas should have believed. He should have believed, but Jesus in his grace gave him what he needed to believe. And Jesus gives us what we need to believe. Jesus gives us eyes that we need to see. The resurrection can handle your scrutiny. Jesus can handle your doubts. This is what Thomas needed. But let me say this, this is, this is not what you need. This is not what you need. See, I'd like to suggest that something different is going on here with Thomas. Thomas didn't need to see Jesus to believe in the resurrection. He should have trusted the witness of his friends. He should have trusted the word of his Savior that he had heard for years. Millions will believe the resurrection without ever seeing, without ever touching, without ever laying eyes on the risen Christ. But Jesus needed to see Jesus in the flesh to be an apostle. He needed to be a witness to the resurrection. Like all the others, even Paul will meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. He needed the encouragement. He needed the strength of seeing Jesus in the flesh to succeed and to walk down the path that was laid for him as an apostle. And indeed, the apostles are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20 says. They're the front line of the battle, of the movement, and their lives will be lost as a result. And this is why Thomas received what he did. And so the takeaway from this account is not, particularly when you hear something like Jesus can handle your doubts, Jesus will give you what is, what is needed. It's not to demand a sign from Jesus in order that you might believe. It is to pray that you will have eyes to see what he has already given it's to recognize and to rejoice that the Lord Jesus knows what you need. That He has given all that you need. That He will show Himself to those who honestly seek Him. You don't need to see me, Jesus says. Instead, blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says, I have given you my witnesses. I have given you real history. I have given you my word. I have given you my spirit. Now believe and be saved. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, though you do not now see him, Peter writes to the church, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. One author wrote, as I was reading and studying this week, faith as the Bible describes it is not blind. Unbelief is blind. Faith sees a reality beyond what eyes can see, a reality that God reveals to us which is more important, in fact, more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. So the message this morning on this resurrection morning is to believe and rejoice in the truth of the resurrection. Your Savior is alive. And let Jesus rescue you from your skepticism. Let Jesus rescue you from your doubts and pray that He does for the, the same for those around you who can't yet see. The Lord Jesus will meet you in your unbelief. And even as you cry, I believe, help my unbelief. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for the experience of the disciples, of the women who surrounded You and followed You faithfully, and of Thomas, the one who struggled. And yet in that struggle, You were at work. In that struggle, You met him. And I pray this morning for all who are in Christ all who may be struggling this morning, Lord, would you meet them in that struggle? Would you confirm in their hearts the veracity, the truth of what your word proclaims? And for those who have not had eyes to see that may be here this morning, for those who have blindness in our lives. Father, may we testify to the truth with boldness, with clarity, with dependence, that it is You who opens eyes, that it is You who meets in unbelief. Oh, Father, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.